Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Jen Marr. Jen is the founder and CEO of Inspiring Comfort and the author of the new book, Showing Up, a comprehensive guide to comfort and connection. In this episode, Jen discussed how her firsthand experience with major trauma at the Boston Marathon bombing, her work in crisis response at Sandy Hook Elementary, and her background in business development ultimately led her to create Inspiring Comfort. She also offers solutions to our current mental health crisis and talks about the importance of knowing how to act on your feelings of empathy. Links to Inspiring Comfort, as well as Showing Up, a Comprehensive Guide to Comfort and Connection, can be found in this episode's show notes. I also would like to dedicate this episode to my hometown of Highland Park, Illinois. Jen, thank you so much for joining me today. I think this is a very timely conversation given what is going on, it seems like almost every week in this country. But before we really dive in to your work as well as your book, would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners? Hi, good morning, Mallory. Thank you so much. And yes, hi, I am Jen Marr. I am author and I am founder and CEO of an organization called Inspiring Comfort that is really focused deeply on human care and connection, um, which is at the intersection of both emotional and social intelligence. Thanks, Mallory. So as I was preparing for this interview and I read your book showing up and listeners, I will post about it both in this episode show notes, as well as on our social media pages, you talk about three trails that we all have. And these three trails are the brain trail, heart trail, and circumstance trail. And I think that's a really great way to segment into your work. If you wouldn't mind kind of talking to our listeners about what brought you to your work. Yeah, no, thanks. That's a great place to start, Mallory, because I do find that life is constantly putting you through twists and turns. And ultimately, it's a combination of three things that land us where we go. Um, and, And that is, what do we love to do? That's our heart. What are we good at? That's our brain. And what happens to us in life? What circumstances kind of pull us um, into different areas um, as a result of that. So the three areas of my life, like let's start with the brain trail. I am at heart an entrepreneur. Um, I have never been given a job or have taken a job that has a job description. Everything I've done in life has been conceptualized, um, started from an idea and built, whether that is processes, books, teams, projects, Um, So at my heart of hearts, I'm a business development um, person and an uh, entrepreneur. Then I'll jump to the circumstances because that really the circumstances of my life have really led to where my heart goes. Um, When I was younger, my parents called me disaster Annie. I was constantly just um, having things happen to me in my life, whether it was broken bones or I almost drowned twice. Um, As I was getting older, uh, I was in more crisis response situations. Uh, As I went into areas like a flood in Minneapolis, I was flooded out of my home. Uh, My husband was at 9-11. 
I was uh, obviously at the finish line near the finish line of the Boston Marathon bombing, um, and I ended up also um, in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook tragedy. These are just to name a few. So circumstances in my life have repeatedly put me into environments where people are suffering trauma, loss, crisis, um, which has really led to my heart work, which is really helping those that are struggling and um, diving into understanding what is it, what are our behaviors, our actions, our habits that are required to build more deep communication or connections and communications and care amongst those, especially when they struggle. And what I found so interesting is that after what happened at Sandy Hook, you started showing up week after week, month after month for almost five years when you didn't need to, but you felt that pull too. Why did you keep coming back? What led you or what told you you needed to be there to help? Yeah, it's a really great question. And honestly, Mallory, I love this question. You're the first person that ever really pointed it out that way. What pulled me to help was constantly asking the question, now what? what? What happens in a crisis response is there's just so many layers to it. And I know, Mallory, your parents live in Highland Park and are dealing with the horrific after effects of that tragic shooting over 4th of July. So this is probably close to home for you. And you'll know that in the first um, chapter of it is just this enormous outpouring and media onslaught of what happens. Um, there, I will call it the comfort onslaught. Um, everybody's just there. Everybody wants to help. Everybody sends things. Everybody wants to know somebody that's helping. Um, and there's just this outpouring of care. Um, and what happens, it becomes overwhelming. Uh, what happens are people that are struggling um, can struggle more because they don't know how to respond to that. They're still in shock. Uh, and in many cases, the people that are trying to help and support are doing something that don't ultimately reach those that are struggling. Um, and, and so their intentions may be found more in the way of, this is making me feel really good that actually I'm doing something to help. When in fact, it doesn't help. So in the case of Sandy Hook, there were warehouses full of stuff. 67,000 teddy bears were sent to a town of 20,000 people. Um, and over the course of time, what happens is that's a huge burden on the town. It doesn't help those that are struggling. Those that are struggling are still feeling very alone and unseen because what you've got media trucks everywhere, that doesn't help them. Um, all this stuff doesn't help. So it is only after days and weeks and months and years that you begin to realize the, the process of recovering from tragedy, crisis, and loss is a long trail of many, many hundreds of actions of care over a long period of time. And so it was in that, the realization of that day after day, week after week, month after month, like, I can't leave yet. It's not ready. And that was after every month or the next year. And it was finally when those first graders, because the Sandy Hook tragedy really um, was um, the first grade classrooms were the ones that were most impacted. When those first graders moved on to middle school, that was when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to move on. Um, and so that's what drove me because at the same time, 
I was going to all these other crisis responses, um, whether it was the drug overdose or suicide or a staff death or a, a community death of some kind. And what happens I've learned over all of those years was those crisis responses are very short lived. If you're deploying to help a school after the loss of a student, um, the crisis response team that's deployed is typically there at most 72 hours. And so it was this dichotomy of, on one hand, I'm there every week and it's going on years and years and years. And then in these other cases, I'm there 72 hours and I'm seeing how nobody is having the skills to know how to support each other in the long term. You know, you mentioned something that I felt when I went to Highland Park. So I was not there on 4th of July in the morning. I was supposed to be in Highland Park later that evening uh, for a dinner with my family. Obviously, that did not happen. Um, I knew people who were there. I knew people who were shot. Thankfully, they're okay. But it's still, I almost had this guilt that I wasn't there. It's my hometown. It's what I consider my safe place. And so I went up to Highland Park two days after in the media circuit, and that's what I'm going to call it. It's a circus was just everywhere. And they were camped out in their little tents with like ready to go to report on what's going on. And I understand they're trying to update, but it almost was overwhelming that as a town, we were trying to grapple and wrap our heads around how this safe place no longer feels safe. And it's like, you're recording it. And it felt very intrusive. It felt really uncomfortable. And so much so where I was like, I, I got, I can't be uptown, like where it happened. I'm, I'm just going to go home and see my parents, but they're going to show up to the next town or the next school or the next mall that this happens. And that's what went through my head is I was like, this week it's Highland Park next week. Where are they going to be? So it's a really weird feeling when it's happening and you don't know how to wrap your head around it. People who I haven't talked to in years were texting me because Whenever people, I meet someone, I'm like, yeah, I'm from Highland Park. It's like, I'm very proud of my hometown. And so I had all these people who I don't really talk to texting me, being like, I'm so sorry. Do you know anything? Do you know what happened? Like, it's overwhelming. And that kind of leads me to this point in your book where you talk about the awkward zone, which I think is the perfect name for this, where people... After a tragedy, they want to reach out or they want to say, I'm so sorry for a loss or what can I do? But they feel uncomfortable because words just aren't enough. So they don't reach out or they don't communicate. And then it's like even more uncomfortable. Can you talk to us about why we as humans want to show empathy and kindness, but we're uncomfortable doing so or we don't know how to do it? Yeah, no, this is you're getting at the heart of everything, uh, Mallory. And so it really is why I started this work, because in all those years of being on the field, I felt like I was standing in this massive gap. Um, this gap on the one side are people that care. Uh, and I, I'm a huge believer in humanity. Um, I know that most people out there care. They have emotions of empathy and compassion. Um, but on the other side of the gap are people that are struggling. And for whatever reason, this gap is widening 
even though people have these good emotions. And so what I came to understand is that you don't just go from good emotions to helping someone because there's always opposing emotions. Um, And so when we think that emotional intelligence is enough to know how to support those that are struggling, we're wrong because we need skills. And so what happens is you have to understand that these good emotions start, um, let's just call the caring emotions what they are, their empathy, their sympathy, their compassion. Um, When dealing with people that are struggling, we also have to take apathy into effect. There are people out there with apathy, right? So when you're really looking at how to tackle this area of people that are struggling, we first have to understand those emotions of care, empathy, sympathy, compassion. So let's say you are a very empathetic person, which all those people that sent those 67,000 teddy bears had empathy in their hearts. How you apply that or not apply it is what comes next, right? So now you have these feelings of empathy or compassion, um, but now you're gonna be opposed by the, the, the thoughts, behaviors, and emotions of doubt, of fear, of awkwardness, of guilt. And in our research, and whenever we go out and do our work and we, we talk to people, um, we will find that 80% of the time, they don't know what to say and do. And so what happens is those opposing emotions win out 80% of the time. And that is why what happens is people don't feel seen. So the other aspect of our surveys are 80% of people will say, I can tell when someone's struggling. Your friend saw you, they sent texts, they saw you. But 80% of the people really feel unseen. You probably thought, my gosh, nobody really understands what I'm going through. And it's not because your friends didn't care. It was just because they didn't quite know how socially to talk to you, right? And this is where we get in. Over the last few decades, we've spent enormous resources on emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence is awesome, right? It really is. And we all need to understand it. The problem is if we only focus on that, we're never going to have the social intelligence to know how to talk to you. So in the world of SEL, you know, we've just finished a research study. Even practitioners in the SEL world will say, we've kind of bunched these up together. Um, We kind of think of social emotional learning as the same, but they're very different. So we have to first look at the emotional element. We have the positive emotions, the opposing emotions. Then you have to look at the action element. You have to have skills and tools. You have to have the social intelligence of understanding what tactics, behaviors, habits do I need to form that I can better talk to Mallory and understand what she's going through. And those are real skills. And um, so that is what we've talked about. Um, I'll let you ask another question, but we can then dive into actually what is in the awkward zone if you want. Yeah, let's go with that. What is part of the awkward zone? Like, Mm -hmm. because when I was reading in your book, I've never learned this before. I've never heard this term, but this, what you're describing, I think it rings true, not only like with tragedies, with mass shootings, but also when people lose their family members or pets or, you know, have these huge amounts of loss, you, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish. And so normally what I always will say is like, may their memory always be a blessing. That's what we always say. Um, but 
you know, it's, it's not getting at the root of how they're feeling their words, but I want to do more, but I just don't know what to do or how to show up. And sometimes I'll ask people, what do you need from me to feel supported? How can I best help you during this time? But, you know, I wouldn't say that to someone I'm not super close with because it's a little uncomfortable. And maybe that's in my own head. And maybe that's where this awkward zone comes into play. Yeah. No, well, let's talk about that, right? So if we know that 80% of people can tell when someone's struggling, but also 80% of people only sometimes rarely or never feel seen in their own struggles. This gap is forming because we haven't really normalized the thought or the process of care. So over the course of the last 10 years and just really researching this and studying it, um, we've kind of developed this language. And really, if we can normalize language to talk about it, that's the first step. And then we'll get into the actual actions. So let's talk about what are the barriers? What are these thoughts and behaviors that stop us? On the first, let's first look at the mindset barriers. All right. So if you know if someone's struggling and we can look at this on any, you can look at it in the workplace and you can look at it for every aspect of burnout or loss or crisis or relationship troubles, or you name it. Um, when people are struggling and you know, someone's struggling and you haven't done anything, that's a mindset barrier, right? There's, there's something going on in your brain that you haven't reached out to them. And so we will bucket those things into two areas. If you know of someone struggling and haven't reached out to them, you will either be falling in the deflector area or you'll be falling in the doubter area. The doubter bucket would be made up of things like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm gonna make it worse. I am not quite sure what to say. It's awkward, it doesn't feel right, right? These are, you know, the person in the doubter bucket is usually feeling like I would help if I knew what I could do, but I just am not quite sure. Not sure if I should even do it. Like you said, I'm not sure I would do that to someone I don't know really well, right? And that's in the doubter bucket. And the other one is the deflector. And the thing before going into deflecting, I want to say with all of these four buckets we're going to talk about, none of them are right or wrong. I mean, or bad or good. If we just have to start normalizing it, that we can say, just like you said, oh, I'm doubting if I should help that person. Okay, that's a good start, right? So let's talk about deflecting. Deflecting is, and we see this a lot in the workplace sector, um, it's not my place to get involved. It's not my place to step in. Someone's better at this than me. Someone else will handle it. Um, you know, I don't have time. Or a big one is I can't take this on, right? Too much to take on. Now, all of those things are mindset barriers that can be overcome if you have actions that you know you can apply against them, right? So, that is on the mindset level. And what we do in our programming is we do these assessments that um, you can actually go back and assess. Am I being more a doubter or a deflector? Um, which of these behaviors is most common to me that I need to overcome? So, all right. So even after mindset barrier, now what happens when you don't have a choice and you have actually seen someone face-to-face? -face? Um, we know this when we run into someone in the supermarket or in the elevator or the parking lot. You run into someone they're struggling, you haven't done anything yet, it's the deer in the headlights, what do I do? And so what happens here is if we're not adequately supporting people, we fall into one of two buckets. We're either gonna be the avoider, <laughs> right? You run into someone and they lost their mom, they don't even bring the name of the mom up. 
don't even bring it up. They'll talk about anything because I am not touching that, right? That's the avoider. And that happens a lot. Um, the other one is the fixer, right? They are just, they're going to jump in. They're going to tell you, this helped me or do this or do that, or I'm going to cheer them up or, you know, they take it on themselves to fix that person. And again, what we find is really to offer support and care. The emphasis, your emphasis should be on them, not what you can do for them, but just understanding where they are. So again, if we can then take these four buckets, again, the mindset, the top layer, we had doubter and deflector on the actual responding area, we have the, the fixer and the avoider. So I'm probably tend to be a doubting fixer most of my life, but at any other time, I can be a deflector if I'm burdened. So if we can all of a sudden just start to normalize this language, Mallory, like, just like you said, oh, I'm doubting. Or for me, a lot of times I'll say, oh, I'm trying to fix that situation. Um, or oh, I'm being an avoider or oh, I'm deflecting that. So that is the first level to actually change our actions is to understand how we're thinking and acting wrong. Does that make sense? That absolutely makes sense. And I think I'm similar to you where I like to go in and try to fix it and make things look good. And um, I've been really practicing one, not doing that because I know that takes away from my energy and it doesn't necessarily help the person as well. And also not everyone is the same everyone's a little bit different. So that was a big lesson that I've been learning lately. In your book, Showing Up, if you wouldn't mind, there was a passage and it was a quote from Kay Warren from a Facebook post. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to read it because I think oh, it, it's good. it hit so close to home for me. Um, it says, it wasn't all that long ago that it was standard in our culture for people to officially be in mourning for a full year. They wore black, they didn't go to parties, they didn't smile a whole lot, and everyone accepted their period of mourning. No one ridiculed a mother in black or asked her stupid questions about why she was still so sad. Obviously, this is no longer accepted practice. Mourners are encouraged to move quickly on, turn the corner, get back to work, think of the positive, be grateful for what is left, have another baby, and other unkind, unfeeling, obtuse, and downright cruel comments. What does this say about us other than we're terribly uncomfortable with death, with grief, with mourning, with loss, or we're so self-absorbed that we easily forget profound suffering of the loss of a child created in a shattered parents and remaining children? And I can't tell you how many times I have heard people, maybe not to the mourner's face, but say, it's been six months. Can they move on? or a close friend of mine overdosed. How do you move on from losing a child like that? Or when you look at Uvalde, maybe the media cameras aren't there anymore, but that town is going to be dealing with that forever. You can't just move on. And with the internet and with technology, I feel like everything is so quick. We're so quick to get downloads or get news that you expect that humans can just quickly move on. And that's not the case. Why is it that we expect those who have experienced these tragedies to just move on? Such a good question. And again, I, I mean, you're just hitting all the things, Mallory. You're the first person ever to read that quote. 
I think that's really just um, really great and enlightening. Um, the other section of my book that you might have um, found was the timeline of human care. And I think what helps us to understand why these, this is happening is to think of everything that's going on right now in the context of time. So if we say, just for argument's sake, we could argue how long humans have existed all day. Let's just say recorded history, all right? Recorded history we know is 5,000 years ago. So take 5,000 years ago, up until 1900, all of our behaviors amongst each other and those behaviors of care never changed, all right? That's 4,900 years, okay? We were in small intact families, we stayed in our little tribes. We took care of our own people. We had a tight-knit community. Most people went to church or synagogue or a place of worship. Um, when the elderly people got sick, they went into the home of the family and that were taken care of there. Um, people buried their own or their own family members. Um, and it was a very tight-knit society. We, people relied on each other for everything. They saw each other face-to-face, -face, looked at each other face-to-face, -face, talked face-to-face, -face, um, supported each other one-to-one. -one. Since 1900, and you could even say since the last 20 years, everything has been flipped on its head to a place right now where we are 100% self-sufficient for everything that we do. Um, you look at things like insurance, building insurance didn't come on until the 1950s. You look at um, assisted living didn't come on the scene until 1980. But nothing has changed as the way that we communicate and the way that the media interacts. So we've now gone to um, screen to screen communication and also just this hyper speed of news and information. And so it's done two things. I think you were very wise um, and intuitive to point out the media cycle. And that's one of the things that we're so desensitized to tragedy and crisis. And we're so focused on the next one and we forget, you know, it's very interesting. You even talked about Uvalde. You didn't go back to Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook was 10 years ago, right? Nobody's thinking of Sandy Hook. This oh. December is the 10 years of Sandy Hook, right? And so it's- I, I will say every time there's a shooting, I always actually think of Sandy Hook because yeah. I think of Obama singing, trying to hold back tears. And I also think about it, this, whatever shooting just occurred. I think mm -hmm. back to how we- as a society, I'm looking at our government, let us down. We could have done something to prevent this. And so every time there is a shooting, maybe I'm one of the few. I always go back to Sandy Hook and say, and think to myself, we didn't do what we needed to do to protect our kids. We didn't do what we need to do to protect our like Americans or to protect future generations. And we we disappointed ourselves. We fell short. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, Uvalde's the most current one. There's been, I, I started this podcast with Fred Gunnenberg, who lost his daughter, Jamie, on February 14th in Florida at Parkland in a shooting. Like, there's just so many that mm -hmm. they didn't have to happen. And that's a whole separate conversation that 
you know, we don't need to get into, but obviously (laughs) people know where I fall and my beliefs with that. But (laughs) um, yeah, I just, I, I guess I, I can't believe it's been 10 years with Sandy Hook. And I wonder how do those children, how are they doing? How, like, how do you move on? And I had another guest, Dr. Bruce Perry, on who wrote the book with Oprah, What Happened to You? And we actually talked so much about that sense of community that you were talking about earlier and how things have shifted so much in the last 50 years. Because like you said, that sense of care, grandparents used to come and live with their children when they got older, or there was that sense of community to help bring about future generations. And now it's people have to work both jobs. Someone's not home. You're in front of a screen all the time, kids. You're losing that person-to-person interaction. And it's funny that you brought that up because it's a constant theme in so many different podcast guest conversations, but their expertise is all different, but it all comes back to that. It all comes back to that. You know, how are the kids doing from Sandy Hook? I mean, I'm in touch with many of them all the time, every week. Um, I love those kids and their parents. And, you know, I was, I just had that extreme honor that I was embedded into that community for five years. Um, And I could actually see what was needed to move on. You know, when I was on the ground, it really drove me to find a different solution because of what solutions were being offered at the time. Um, And again, I'm a huge believer of every solution. So what I talk about here is not meant to, you know, say one solution is bad over the other. Um, But a lot of, first of all, in responding to all these crises, there would be a lot of schools focused on random acts of kindness. Now, look, no one can argue that being kind is an incredibly important trait. And as we have a more divided world, we need to teach people how to be kind, right? So let's, let's understand that. The issue is random is random. And so when we're training people to, um, and not even training, but putting the focus on, you know, buy a cup of Starbucks for the person behind you or put the shopping carts away, like all those are beautiful actions, but they're not resulting in the connection that's needed. After a tragedy, it's the the connection that's needed. Um, And secondly, Uh, as we alluded to before, it's the emotional training programs, programs talking about empathy and compassion. And again, these are critical emotions. No one can argue that we don't all need to have empathy and compassion in our hearts. But when you're faced with someone that is struggling, that lost a son or daughter, or you have a teacher that you're coming to every day, those feelings don't equip you to act. And so the missing piece, and this is why I'm so passionate about this, you know, and I've done research studies on it now. In fact, we're just, um, the latest one that we did is under peer review. Uh, it was funded by the New York office of mental health. Um, it, it finds that intersection of social and emotional, right? It is looking at compassionate and pro-social behaviors. You have to recognize that there's two different things that are required one is an emotion and secondly is the actions that go with that emotion and thirdly we have to look at the fact that you can have people with apathy you have a lot of people out there not a lot but a chunk of people that don't care 
The thing about apathy is what we found in, in, our, in our studies, and this has happened time and time again, you can take someone that doesn't care and you give them required actions to do and they will cultivate empathy in their hearts. And um, if you read the story of Sam in the book, that is an example of that. So we have to be able to find that intersection of social and emotional intelligence to be able to really care for people. Because at its core, comfort is a verb and a noun. So the verb form is to bring strength and hope. And comfort to me is the perfect intersection of, of emotional and social intelligence. Because you can care about someone without connecting with them. You can connect with someone without caring for them, but you cannot comfort someone without the combination of care and connection. And so that's why this science of human care has just been such a deep love and passion of mine for all of these 10 years, because I think we have to find new solutions and innovative different ways to attack a problem that has not been being solved. And I'm curious how you deal with this because you are taking on a lot. It's a lot of emotion. It's a lot of feelings. It's a lot of seeing the not so great part of humanity. You're coming in right after something happens and you're seeing a lot of broken people. What would you tell people who are too emotionally exhausted to get up every day and Mm. and to keep fighting the fight? Because I know me, let's just talk about what's going on in today's news cycle. Look at what women's health rights, the LGBTQ plus rights to get married, the world's literally on fire, (laughs) ice caps are melting and it's hard and you have acts of shooting going on and you just think to yourself, wow, like how do you even want to get up and believe in the good? How do you do that? What would you tell others who maybe are struggling to see the glass half full right now? That's a good question, Mallory. You know, I'm going to answer that by starting with what I'm doing is what helps me. And it is in the science of how we are wired that we understand this. Because you said something interesting. You said, how do I get up in the morning? And by doing that, what happens is you put the focus on yourself, like, oh my gosh, I've got to figure out how to fix this. And it's just so hard. And, and that is a very internal looking. And what, what we need to be able to do is I need to be able to see you. We need your friends to see you and you need to see your friends. It shouldn't ever be taking the burden on ourselves. We're wired to care for others, right? Hormonally, what happens when we're under stress, we have cortisol dumped in our system. The hormone that overpowers that is oxytocin. That is the human bonding hormone. When you feel like you are just about ready to burst, if you can't talk to somebody about a problem, um, Dr. Kelly McGonigal from Stanford University will say that is a release of oxytocin in your system to seek connection. So how I have gotten through this is the relationships that I formed with helping others, they help me back, you know, it was only four months after Sandy Hook that Boston happened, right? I was there to support Sandy Hook. But what happened after I came back from that race where I was a half mile from the finish line? They cared for me. Like, and, and it was so reciprocal and so beautiful. And 
you know, that's why I know all these people still today. I didn't know one person when I walked into Sandy Hook. And today there's amongst some of my best friends. And it's because when you walk with someone through a difficult time, you have your most trusted, caring, deepest relationships ever. It's all in relational wellness. And if you think back to your favorite people in your life, I guarantee you there are people that that helped you through tough times and they saw you and they know you. And that's what we have to get back to. We each have the capability of doing that. And it shouldn't be up to you, Mallory, to figure it out as you get up. It should be up to your dearest friends around you that say, you know what, I'm worried about Mallory. Her parents were at Highland Park. Hey, Mallory, you want to go, you know, grab a glass of wine tonight? Or, you know, I'm going for a walk. Mallory, you want to join me? And it's part of the book, I think, if you saw the marble jar, that, you know, relational issues and relationships and care and comfort and connection, it's hundreds of little actions. It's never one thing. It's getting together with your friends now and then. It's having the text chain that you're checking in with each other, sending somebody a picture and making you laugh about a memory that's remembered. And it's just these constant connected activities that show up for people um, that show that you care. And when people show up for you, it makes you feel better. All of a sudden that gives you hope, right? It's the people that are going to give you hope. It's never going to be the news. Never in a million years will we have news that gives us hope. So turn off the news and look to your friends. And that's what has taught me. And that's why every day I'm more passionate about this work. I'm a big fan of snail mail. I love getting mail and I love (laughs) cards. And so what I actually do is I collect cards that I think my friends would appreciate or inside jokes. And I send cards to them, like a handwritten note, just something simple out of the blue, because I want to make them smile. Or I think it's something that we don't do as much. We usually will text or FaceTime or whatever it is. And that's something I started doing a few years ago is I like to send cards to people. It's like a perfect one small thing. And think Um, how much you love it when you get them, right? Oh yeah. And I also love searching for cards. I think they're hilarious and some of them just put a smile on your face and you keep them. So with all your work, you ended up starting Inspiring Comfort. Can you talk to us a little bit about that organization and how you decided to form your own company? Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, this started um, back a little over five years ago. At the time, it was very focused on crisis response. We're very focused on understanding the word comfort. Um, that umbrella is obviously widened in the aftermath of the pandemic and everything. It boils down a lot now to even burnout and all sorts of things that people are dealing with. So we've started the company um, to find solutions and to train people to walk through this awkward zone and to understand their behaviors. Um, So back in 2018, we um, put out some programming. Then I wrote a book. um, Then the pandemic happened. Then at that point, we decided to move an assessment online, um, create a whole training, train the trainer program, adult programming, youth programming, went through an additional research study. And so where it stands today um, is we teach and train people how to show up for each other with care and connection um, in four steps. We first go in and assess an organization or a school or a college um, and really get a temperature read of how cared for do people feel here. 
Um, where do they feel seen? Where do they not feel seen? Um, what do they worry most about? What have they been dealing with? Um, we aggregate this data to put into presentations. Um, we also give people an individual assessment for how well do you show up for others. And those that self-reported assessment is kicked back to you. Um, that will show you, here are these behaviors of mine. Am I more of a deflector or a doubter or a fixer? Um, and then we take those. Um, so now when we train, we have all this data from our assessments that's provided to the organization. We start with an informing webinar or presentation or keynote. We go into equipping workshops where people dive into small group discussions and really dive into their data and pair those with specific actions and tools and strategies and habits that they can do to overcome their barriers. Um, and we have several workshops of that. And then the last step is we cultivate. We'll do a train the trainer program that we will certify a trainer to go within an organization um, to be able to cultivate that um, culture of care within an environment. Um, we also have a few other train the trainer programs for youth or just a community train the trainer that can go out into a community and um, do that themselves. And listeners, if you want to learn more, all information on how to learn more about Jen, as well as inspiring comfort will be in this episode show notes, because if you think your organization, school, um, community can benefit, we all definitely can. I want to be able to provide you with the information so you can reach out to her and her group to learn more and see if it's like a good fit to bring them in and hopefully help train us to be more empathetic, to be more compassionate and understanding how we can best support one another during these uncertain times that, you know, will probably keep going on. But if we're equipped with the right tools, we'll be able to handle them in a lot better of a way. Jen, mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Before we wrap up with our final three questions, I just want to give a little bit of a shout out to your book. I loved it. It was easy to read. I loved the graphics. I loved how you brought in stats and checklists in a non-threatening way or in, a, in an easy to digest and understand way. Because sometimes this information, when you're giving so much data or giving all these tools, it can be a bit overwhelming. The book is beautifully done. Listeners, um, I'm going to be giving away one copy of it. So make sure you follow us on Instagram to learn more about how to get it. But it's available on Amazon and as well through her website. And those links will be in this episode's show notes. So thank you for doing the work you are doing. It's interesting how your life brought you to it, but it's so needed and so appreciated. So thank you. Thanks, Mallory. I end every episode with the final three questions. The first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you lived your life by, what would it be? Well, you know, it's kind of the quote that got me going and it, it's, it can be attributed to a lot of different people. I think Teddy Roosevelt is one. I know John Maxwell is another, but it's the line, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Very fitting and a very, very true quote. If you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? You know, I'm glad you gave me these questions ahead of time because I think I would have been stumped and I really had to think about this question. Um, you know, I would go back to that second Boston Marathon race that I did after we were stopped half mile from the finish line the year before they um, invited us back to run it the second time. And 
you know, it was still kind of in that post-traumatic time frame. It took a while to really process both those tragedies. And I focused a little too much on the run itself. And I would go back. I mean, it was a beautiful day. It was amazing to run that race again and, and finish it. Um, but I would have appreciated that race a lot more. I would, um, I would have celebrated the win of being there more than focusing on how fast can I run it this time. Um, I would celebrate how far we had gotten a year later, even though at the time it felt like we were still in the thick of it. Um, and so there are times that I wish I would know now what I knew then, what I didn't know then. Do you think maybe you focus so much on the run and the race to kind of keep your mind from wandering on what happened last year as a way of deflecting to, because sometimes if you start to overthink about what happened, you might get nervous or scared or feel uncomfortable. But when you're so super focused on something, I think it blocks out everything else. Yeah, I think our vision is a little clouded um, when we are dealing with so much stuff and you talk to anybody that's dealt with trauma and, and crisis it it takes years for the clouds to lift and for you to really see a clear picture of everything that was going on at the time you know it took me almost a year to even combine Boston into Sandy Hook as to an experience together I had for many many months bucketed them into two different things um and so the mind is a is a is an interesting um, thing. And I think it's sometimes you're simply incapable of it at that time. So that's why I'd like to relive it because I would be capable now of being able to experience it in such a different way. Absolutely. And then the final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? <laughs> well, I happen to love Kygo. And Kygo has this great song here for you. Um, and so to me, that is such a great combination. If we would all just be here for each other um, and play Kygo's music, the world would be a much better place. <laughs> I love it. And so I'm going to add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can listen to your theme song as well as all the other guests as well. Jen, thank you so much. Thank you for the work you're doing. I know how busy you are, so I appreciate you taking time out of your day to chat with me. And I just am so appreciative of this conversation. And you inspire me to believe that we are going to make the world a better place and that we are moving forward to be more compassionate and caring towards one another. So thank you. Mallory, thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. And you know what? You are a compassionate and empathetic generation. And if you can get this social intelligence layered on top of it, it the world will be a much better place. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.